WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Rizal. Tonight, we usually host Sexposure, but due to some last-minute emergencies, we had to cancel until next month's episode. Instead, we will be reflecting on our achievements and awards from the 2015 Michigan Association of Broadcasters competition that were announced earlier this year. Along with winning Station of the Year, Impact 89 FM scooped up awards in other categories, which you will be hearing from tonight. We'll start with former news director Stephen Rich with his feature on Distilling Michigan, which placed second in the news feature category. We then go to current news director Quinn Hoffman with his feature on the emergence of graphic novels, which placed third in the news feature category. Stephen Rich returns with his interview on College Radio Day that placed first in the talk show category, and from there we'll play one of our staff picks on zines done by our station manager, Gabriela Saldivia. We'll close off the show with an interview with band Desmond Jones done by our former, former news director, Abby Newton. But first, here's your weekly Impact update. Now it's time for an update from Impact News. Exposure will begin in just a moment, but first, here's your weekly Impact News update. This week, an Oklahoma legislative committee voted to ban the teaching of advanced placement U.S. history classes. The author of the bill, Republican Dan Fisher, said the state shouldn't fund the college-level course in high schools because he believes the class emphasizes what is bad about America and characterizes the U.S. as a nation of oppressors and exploiters. However, after facing criticism, Fisher withdrew the bill later in the week, saying that he plans to submit a new bill requiring a state review of the AP course rather than its complete defunding and replacement. Next, we go to Impact reporter Kim Alchatel with an update on a conflict in Syria. Early Sunday morning, NBC News reported on Turkish troops invading Syria late Saturday night in a successful attempt to rescue 40 soldiers who have been surrounded by ISIS militants. The town of Ankara, Syria, is home to the tomb of Suleiman Shah, who is in relation to the founder of the Ottoman Empire. There has always been soldiers guarding the tomb, and they are typically rotated every six months, but because of the ISIS presence, these soldiers have been stuck there for eight months. Turkey has not had troops in Syria since Syria's civil war four years ago and did not get permission for the mission that required tanks, drones, reconnaissance planes, and several hundred ground troops. Despite the lack of formality, Turkey's prime minister is considered is considering this a successful mission that included no losses of life. For Impact News, I'm Kim Elchatel. Up next, we have Mike Brichta with the details on an on-campus fashion show. On Friday, March 6th, the Department of Art, Art History, and Design at MSU will be holding their annual apparel and textile design fashion show. Over 60 features of creative explorations from students will be displayed. The MSU Apparel and Textile Design program encourages creativity in their students as they combine fine art, culture, and technical design to create original garments, which reflect an understanding of global issues. This fashion show will take place at 7 p.m. at the Wharton Center. For your entertainment news, I'm Mike Brichta. And now we will go to Quinn Hoffman with an update on Impact's birthday celebration. This week, the Impact is turning 26 years old. This Friday, on the 27th, 
The station will be celebrating with a concert at The Loft, headlining Detroit band Clint Eastwood. The opening acts include Lights and Caves, Marvels, and Tidal. The station will be giving away tickets on air all this week. Doors open at 7 p.m. All ages are welcome. With your music news, I'm Quinn Hoffman. Now back to Exposure. You're tuned into Exposure, and I'm your host, Daniel Rizel. We'll start off with a feature done by our former news director, Stephen Rich, which placed second in the news feature category from the 2015 MAB Awards, done on Michigan distilleries. The start of my story brought me to a neighborhood in Okemos. I was there for an informational session for a brewery and distillery startup. I parked my car and walked towards a two-story brick building. I was surprised to see a couple kids by the door, but they took my jacket, made me leave my shoes, and directed me upstairs. The small room was packed with people. There was a big sofa along the back wall, food and drinks on a long card table, and Cornelius kegs cluttered in a corner with printed signs above each one. Heck yes, Heffenweizen, Kinky Brown, King Jeremy Imperial Stout. It was Sleepwalker Brewery and Distillery. The Japanese translation for a sleepwalker, the literal translation, it's four characters or so, it's um, dream, play, person. And so we love that. I mean, a person who's you know, dreaming and playing. And so that became, that became our slogan. So dream, play, is sleepwalker. That was Matt Jason, one of the co-founders of the business. Matt and his business partner, Jeremy Sprague, had been homebrewing for years before branching out into micro-distilling and developing what has become sleepwalker. So I've been brewing pretty hardcore at home for about five, a little over five years now. Um, and Matt has been brewing for, I think, over 23 years at home, 24 years? Um, it'll, be, it'll be 20 next year. Oh, okay. 75 years or something <laughs> like that? <laughs> so um, about five years ago, Matt uh, had me come meet him for drinks to talk about micro-distilling. Now, micro-distilling is centers around developing unique and high-quality liquors in small quantities. While micro-brewing is quite popular in the state, Matt and Jason are one of a few micro-distillery businesses in Michigan. With spirits, there are some economies of scale that are, you have to take into consideration. I mean, you can make really good whiskey on a huge scale, and with beer, we don't tend to see that as much. So there, there isn't as huge, as big of an impetus, I don't think, to do smaller um, company or um, um, smaller outputs of of whiskey, but but you can make a really unique, distinctive product that the big companies won't make. So, with a focus on quality and local products, they've begun to cement themselves in the mid-Michigan community. In the past, they partnered with the Allen Neighborhood Center to serve beer at fundraisers. Um, and obviously, as home brewers, you know we can't charge anything for it, so we're just bringing, serving small samples. And you know, we so we kind of gave this cool spin to their event, and they gave us some exposure. And we are currently now working on leasing a space from them to produce beer this summer and to to serve um, to fill growlers to go. They've also partnered with Craft and Mason Coffee Roasters, and Midtown Brewing Company actually did a collaboration brew with Sleepwalker. So you know, there are people who want to do some fun, unique things, and that's what we're all about. But micro-distillery work is challenging and expensive. It's difficult to take those first steps in the industry. But Michigan State University may have the answer. The MSU Artisan Distilling Program has been working to develop and educate individuals pursuing distilling. So like 17 years ago, the law changed to make it easier to do uh, small-scale distilling. 
And as a chemical engineer, also with a lot of training in food science, uh, I thought, you know, that might be a good time for MSU to see if they want to get involved in this. And uh, so we had some meetings and stuff and, uh, and, and with the industry and everything. And the general, uh, uh, the, the, you know, everybody agreed that it would be a good thing for MSU to have a program to support this industry. And Dr. Chris Berglund is the professor who founded the Educational Distilling Program and its commercial partner, Red Cedar Distilling. And years later, the distilling program remains a unique resource here at MSU. This is the only distilling program in the United States. It's that. This is it. <laughs> and uh, uh, and so, uh, so we have a, a really uh, good position to train people. People come from all over the United States and Canada and even Mexico to take workshops we have. And, and so uh, we're not just the only one in the U.S. We're kind of the North American uh, center for this sort of thing. And, and that's, we're really, th that's really good because I think it, you always, even if there's only one, you want to be the best, right? So <laughs> Berglund said that the focus remains on giving students tools to learn about the industry. Uh, everybody that works here right now is an MSU student, and one, either a graduate student or undergraduate, and even people tending bar, you know, at the, in the tasting room, are MSU or uh, MSU students, um, and so uh, so we, we really try to keep the uh, the MSU stuff as a really uh, kind of in the front. From a cohesive relationship with the big name companies to the growth of the spear industry as a whole, Berglund told me that the future of craft distilling was looking bright. Whiskey alone is growing between you know four and eight percent per year. And so it's really a big growth market. And uh, so there's plenty of room for a lot of people. And I think it's just people are, are, are liking, they like the sort of the buy local spirits, wine, beer, the, the local stuff is really popular. Uh, and then the big brand stuff's still popular too. And community members like Alfonso Salas look forward to seeing how this growth in the distilling market can bring growth to the community. Well, I'm excited first and foremost is that uh, th this company, our, our Sleepwalker, is is being located here in Lansing. I think it's important that if you if you live in the community and you believe in Lansing, you believe in the community, you see that its growth, then why not invest in it? And so I took a seat at the bar in the Red Cedar tasting room, and I ordered the bartender's favorite because if there's one place where you trust their judgment, it's at the distillery. Cheers. For Impact News, I'm Stephen Rich. Up next, we have a feature that placed third in the news feature category done by our current news director, Quinn Hoffman. It's on the emergence of comic books or graphic novels. I'm not really sure what the difference is, but we can take a listen. The Walking Dead, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, V for Vendetta, Kick-Ass. What do all these movies and TV shows have in common? They all started as graphic novels. That's right, comic books. Centuries old and more commonly known as comics, graphic novels are defined a novel made up of a sequence of drawings in boxes that tell a story. Many people associate comic books with kids, but that's not where we find them today. The caliber of art and writing in these books, a lot of these books has grown to be very powerful. That's Gabe Cooper, the owner of the new comic book store in East Lansing, The Hollow Mountain. 
with writers like Alan Moore and Brian K. Vaughn and Frank Miller, you know, leading this kind of, I guess, modern revolution in literature, just because they have illustrations doesn't make the words within them less powerful or meaningful. If we didn't have this big, you know, pulse in popular culture that's pushed, you know, the word comic book, the word graphic novel into the forefront of entertainment, we wouldn't see a lot of these opportunities arising for, you know, uh, self-published comics and independent artists and writers. Uh, it's not just Marvel and DC anymore. And this recent surge of comic book love isn't just for fun. I found that scholars like Professor Megan Inbody are starting to look to them for educational purposes. Would you be surprised at all if a student had been assigned a comic book or a graphic novel to read for an English class? Mm, would I be surprised? Yeah. Um, I don't think so. There's a lot of talk about you know including more forms of visual culture as worthy of literary study. I think more and more English departments are taking the kind of ways that we study old traditional texts and are applying them to newer media like film and you know various digital texts. So trying to stay up with the times and stay relevant. She says that the English major is going through a period of transition and where it's going just may start to include a lot more comics. Ian Baker, an MSU sophomore who studies advertising, was assigned a graphic novel, Persepolis, for his humanities course last semester. I thought it was really cool because, you know, it's not just a, it's not just reading, it's a combination of art as well. After talking with the experts for a couple weeks, I found out that our very own Michigan State has the largest comic book collection in the world that's open to the public. So I decided to meet with the owner, Randy Scott, to tour this prestigious collection. The new 52 is ending up here. He told me that comics were given a bad reputation through the funny pages in the 1920s, but he believes that Although there are still some stupid comics coming out, they are gradually being taken more seriously. So a lot of people, especially people older than me, grew up uh, in the time when those things were, comics were being denounced by senators on the air and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's been a long struggle, and now there are a younger generation of professors who don't have that stigma automatically built into them. The 1950s is widely referred to as the golden age concerning comics, and it was for the kids. But the love for the medium in adult audiences seems to be growing every day. And this rapid growth is causing some people to start to ask, is the age of the graphic novel closer than we think? For Impact News, I'm Quinn Hoffman. Up next, we go back to Stephen Rich on College Radio Day, which placed first in the talk show category. Now, to fit the criteria for that, he had to cut down an entire episode of exposure to just 30 minutes to meet those requirements. You'll hear from Scott Westerman and his experiences in MSU student radio from back in the 1970s, along with another MSU alum who is the current director of Michigan Radio. You also hear from Doug Blake, the founder of Pirate Media and Promotions. This Friday, all across the nation, colleges and high schools will celebrate their student-run radio stations. And here at The Impact, we wanted to give you an inside look at our history and look at the future of college radio. We kick off the show with a conversation I had with an MSU alum and current executive director of the MSU Alumni Association, Scott Westerman. Uh, my name is Scott Westerman. I came to Michigan State University in 1973, and I came specifically because of student radio. 
Um, I always wanted to be a guy who owned radio stations. I started working in radio when I was age 14 mm-hmm. in Ann Arbor while I was growing up, riding my bicycle there before <laughs> I even had a driver's license before school and after. And so MSU was the place to go. Back then, we had five student radio stations, wow. uh, four in the dorms and then uh, WMSN, which was in the basement of student services. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, housed in Wonders Hall, and we had a radio station in the basement there, WEAK. Mm-hmm. They were all back in the day uh, AM radio stations, and our transmitters were connected to the wiring system so that uh, students basically inside the dorms could pick us up. It was a horrible sound. There was a ton <laughs> of hum. It was just really, really bad. But we had, just like you guys do, an amazingly supportive a uh, group of students that uh, were involved. We had, you know, probably 150, 200 people across all the stations that were working on campus radio. And um, it was a great launching pad for my career. One of the things mm-hmm. I discovered was that I did not want to do radio for a living. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was, a, after graduation, uh, I kind of floated into the cable TV industry. That was the majority of my career with a five-year kind of entrepreneurial hiatus in the middle. And um, um, along the way, every good thing that seemed to happen to me in my career had a Spartan connection. Uh, So when uh, the opportunity uh, came to uh, become the head servant at the MSU Alumni Association, uh, I jumped at it, and it's turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) Well, great to hear. And I actually never knew that uh, that MSU Radio started as all the different dorm radios. I heard about this earlier this year, and I was just blown away that it was kind of like within its own building each. So there's only five total stations, so there's five buildings essentially that had a station? Well, the way that it worked was uh, back in 1957, right after Brody was built, uh, a bunch of kids came up with the idea of student radio mm-hmm. on what they call carrier current broadcasting uh, with an AM transmitter. And they, cre- they built, it was a homebrew transmitter they called Cheyenne Brody. <laughs> and for 10 years, uh, that they've transmitted out of the basement of Brody Hall. Uh, they originally homebrew equipment. Along the way, they got enough funding that they were able to buy a Gates Yard, which was the state of the art, kind of like your digital, uh, equivalent of your digital oh. year this year. And... Um, as the uh, interest in radio grew, the signal kind of spread further across mm-hmm. the campus. And um, by the time I got here, uh, there were, uh, you know, five stations. Uh, there was, was a signal in every dorm. So mm-hmm. if you lived in the Brody Complex, you got WBRS. If you lived in uh, uh, Wonders and Wilson, you got WEAK. If you were in Shaw, you got WKME. If you're in McDonald and Holmes, you got WMCD. And everything else got WMSN. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of time during the, the day when we would actually – pot up the network and um, take their programs. They had a, a, something called Ellipsis, which was the equivalent of exposure back in the day. Oh. And that was something that, um, you know, we all, all the stations carried during during uh, prime time, if mm-hmm. you will. So it doesn't sound like there was much competition. It was kind of everyone working together within their own parts of campus as kind of like a network. Right. Oh. That's what it was. It was the Michigan State Network. That's what WMSN stood for. Mm. Um, very collaborative. And all of us who worked in the dorm stations eventually uh, did at least one shift at WMSN. That was the place that had the best gear, the largest record library, and the most resources. Um, so besides being a DJ, what sort of did you do anything else while you were at the student radio stations? Were you guys set up a lot like us, where we have directors kind of leading different departments? Um, what was the setup like when you were there? It was very similar to what you have now. Um, every station had its general manager, student general manager. They were paid. And we had uh, record, uh, the music director, production director, traffic and continuity, which wrote basically the, the, the cards that we read, just like oh. the cards that you have today. Uh, in some cases, promotion directors. And there was a radio board, like you have now, exactly the same kind of makeup from the various constituencies that we served. Um, and then, so 
the, with the dorm stations, one of the things I was kind of interested in, I, you might have touched on this a little bit, but was there any like specialization of sound between the different dorms? Like, could you tell if you're listening to WEAK compared to one of the other ones? Right. Oh, yeah. They, each, each dorm had the personality of its general manager. Hmm. So uh, at WEAK, we were very much what we called progressive rock, which now, which now you would think of as classic rock. Uh, we, were like, we loved to break new music. Um, we interviewed bands when they came through and that kind of stuff. WMCD was the one that Steve Schramm want, ran, and he's the guy that now runs Michigan Radio in Ann Arbor. Back then, he and I were screaming top 40 disc jockeys. We were both working at uh, 94.9 FM, playing the hits, and he wanted to play top 40 at WMCD. <laughs> so he went out and had a jingle package recorded. He taught his guys how to be top 40 jocks, and that station sounded just as good as anything that was on the air in the market. Wow. That's impressive. <laughs> And that's just, I mean, to me, that's so funny because, I mean, we do have specialty shows, um, you know, where we'll feature different music, but Impact definitely has this uh, very distinct indie music sound to it. So the fact that there was just very different stations to each dorm. And I can imagine a student who, like, comes to Michigan State is really into progressive rock and then gets the top 40 station. <laughs> that would be kind of funny. Well, and that was the interesting thing, though, because, I mean, even even in the top 40 formats, I mean, there were times of the day when you might hear WBRS or you might hear WKME, mm. depending upon um, how things were scheduled across the network. I mean, like today, they had the same problem that you guys have, and that is getting people to show up for shifts. <laughs> so as they worked out their week, it might, the, the, best, the best thing that could happen for you if you were a DJ in Brody or Wonders or Shaw was to have all campus. Mm. If they put you up on all campus and you were talking to everybody across campus. That was awesome. And it was really a neat way to build fan base. There, mm -hmm. there were guys uh, that, that lived in homes in Hubbard Hall that loved WBRS because of the kind of stuff that they did. Um, and um, at, at, at the end of the day, if you listened to, with any regularity uh, to student radio back then in those days, you got a good kind of broad taste of all the different formats. Mm -hmm. And this is probably going to be the toughest question I'm going to ask, but during your time at College Radio, what do you think is the most memorable song or the favorite song that you played? Oh, my gosh. Well, it's a tough one. <laughs> during, during Campus Radio, um, that was I was a uh, top 40 guy back then, so my favorite song was Midnight Confessions by the Grassroots. Mm. Um, I loved Chicago. We played a lot of Chicago because they were just, just getting getting going, so probably – Probably Make Me Smile by Chicago. Mm. Favorite album of all time still, Abbey Road. Nothing like it. You can listen to it from beginning to end. It's one, one big symphony. And the record we played most often was a, a horrifically obscene song by Nilsson called You're Breaking My Heart. <laughs> because the one thing that was different then than now was that we were not FCC licensed stations. Oh. And anything went. So um, uh, encouraging our student G DJs to keep it clean was always a big challenge. Because the students knew it, so they would always call and say, hey, "Will you play your breaking your breaking my heart by Nielsen?" We knew exactly why they wanted to hear that, <laughs> because it had one of the the most important of the seven words you can't see on radio and television. Oh, no. It's like it's like watching the Big Lebowski over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us. We've been talking with Scott Westerman, who is the executive director of the MSU Alumni Association, and he helps helps us out a lot here at the Impact. So, thank you for all that you do for my us. My pleasure. Again, I'm Stephen Rich, and this is Impact 89 FM. You are listening to Exposure. If you've spent any time driving across the state, chances are at some point you've tuned into a Michigan radio station. 
With stations in Grand Rapids, Flint, and Ann Arbor, the NPR affiliate covers almost all of Lower Michigan. And it just so happens that the director of the station is also an MSU campus radio alum. He called the station to talk about his history with college radio. So my, uh, my uh, current responsibility is I'm the director and general manager of Michigan Radio. We're the NPR news station here at the University of Michigan. And I know you're saying a Spartan is at the University of Michigan, but I'm uh, <laughs> very proud to serve the institution here and certainly love my alma mater, and mm. I'm not conflicted about it. But Michigan Radio uh, serves the entire uh, state of Michigan with the most listened to public radio service in the state. And we are one of the most listened to public radio stations uh, in the United States in terms of overall audience uh, market share. We've been on the air for uh, 66 years serving the state of Michigan and have been a news and information-based formatted station since 1996. Mm. But this is not where I've spent all my career, but I have been here for the uh, last, oh, I don't know, eight and a half years. I was curious, um, for you, you know, coming from um, more of the commercial stuff, was there a lot of uh, stuff that you've used in the past or a lot of, um, you know, strategies that you've used that work at Michigan Radio, or was it a big transition coming there? Well, I think the biggest transition uh, is first understanding how public radio is organized as a uh, as an entity from the business side of things. Uh, in commercial broadcasting, our primary interest was uh, selling advertising, you know, the commercial spots that would run on the air, and that was our primary form of income. Mm -hmm. And here in public radio, there's a, a multiple dimensions of revenue streams that are responsible for building the resources and the success of public radio. At our station in particular, 62% of our revenue comes from membership, from individual donors who uh, either make sustaining gifts or gifts during our pledge drives or annual gifts, mm. and that represents 62% of the money we see every year. After that, 21% of our revenue comes from corporate support, which we call underwriting announcements. Those are probably the closest parallel to what we would do in the commercial world as, uh, as announcements. Then after that, we have other types of revenue. We have grants uh, from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Separately, we also have grants that we solicit from foundations. And then we have other sorts of uh, incremental income from uh, various other sorts of uh, opportunities that we uh, enterprise with. So there's so many different ways that public radio is supported and the financial basis of how public radio was built was very interesting and very dynamic, and it gives us, uh, I think, a great opportunity to grow it in a number of ways. So that was probably the single biggest adjustment for me, is looking at all the ways that there are revenue supports for public radio, which are different from commercial. The other thing that is very attractive to me personally and this is a, a, a very high compliment to the University of Michigan, is that we are able to run our operation locally. There is a, a respect for the firewall in terms of our journalism and, and, and the way that we can independently report and independently enterprise stories mm. that are going to be on the air at Michigan Radio. There isn't, there isn't an oversight that causes a problem with the uh, quality of how we uh, do our journalism. So I think that, too, was another very strong positive aspect of not only how to manage the station, but how we are able to attract very um, strong journalists who uh, respect that type of separation 
of, uh, of influence and are able to do their best work in a way also that is appreciated. In public radio, we have the opportunity to run stories that are not just, you know, 10 seconds of a soundbite, but are three and five and 10 and 12 minutes long, depending on the value of the story. So there's a number of different uh, environments inside of the public media and public radio world that make it very attractive. And I can understand why journalists are drawn to it, because there is a pure appreciation for how storytelling is crafted and how the news that we report is properly vetted and properly researched to be accurate and in depth. Mm. And so now that we, uh, or now that I have more of a, you know an understanding of what you're doing now and just the general direction of Michigan Radio, I was wondering, I was hoping you could take kind of a step back at, to the beginning of your career in um, radio. We talked with Scott Westerman earlier in the show, who um, actually told me he came to Michigan State for the radio. Um, so did you start uh, working in radio before you came to Michigan State, or is was Michigan State really your first? taste of well, the radio. Well, you know, I, uh, I toured Michigan State and the campus radio operation in my junior year of high school, mm. and I had heard about it. I actually was accepted to both Michigan and Michigan State, and of course, the University of Michigan had a student radio station, uh, still does, WCBN, but I had heard that the Michigan State operation was far more diverse, and at the time, uh, at each neighborhood station, there were probably anywhere from 30 to 50 students that were on the local neighborhood station. And then the WMSN had 50 or 60 students as well. So there were a lot of students involved in campus radio back in those early formative days. And it was uh, we all had a high degree of pride and participation to make it sound as meaningful to students as we could and as professional as we could. Mm. And I understand that, were you managing one of the stations, WBRS, correct? Well, I uh, my first day on campus at Brody Hall, I, I was in Bryant Hall. I dropped my bags and immediately went over to WBRS and applied to be on the staff there. And uh, within the afternoon, they had me on the air. And in my as a freshman, I became what they called the chief announcer. It was the person who trained all the incoming students on how to operate the equipment and how to follow the station's policies and procedures and how to be a disc jockey. Mm -hmm. And so I did that initially, and then the second year I was the program director at WBRS in Brody. And then by my uh, junior year, our network manager, Mark Conlon, said, uh, we have an opportunity. We need to have some new leadership over at the uh, McDonald Hall radio station, WMCD, and they asked me to take over that station, which I did. That's where I became the uh, the general manager at that station. And in my senior year, I became the general manager of WMSN, the network station. So you really, you almost hit every single radio station on campus. Yeah, I uh, I played the circuit and <laughs> uh, really loved it. We had such a, and this is not just being boastful and wonderlust, but we had such a bumper crop of strong, talented contributors to campus radio in that mid-70s era. So with the College Radio Day, one of the things we're looking at, you know, not only looking at our history and, you know, how much that impact has, um, you know, contributed to campus or how much College Radio has meant to MSU, but also looking forward to kind of the future of radio. And I feel like you you would definitely be the, the person to ask because you do work in radio. Um, you know, radio isn't exactly the most um, technologically advanced um, format 
um, for a lot of people. So how do you think that radio is going to stay relevant? And especially at college, how do you think they stay relevant to students? Well, I think that's a very key question right now, especially being relevant to students. I think that, you know, certainly students are early adopters of new technology and students of, of this generation have been accustomed to having, uh, you know, content on demand, whether it be music, whether it be news or anything else. So a lot of students haven't uh, necessarily, and certainly the most recent years, uh, been subject to listening to live as it happens linear broadcasting. They have been more of a menu-driven, on-demand type of uh, society, if you will. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. And before we do go, is there is there one memorable song or one memorable album that you remember from your time um, here at MSU on the radio? Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> it's I, a tough I, one. I know everybody who's been on the air says, well, I played thousands of songs. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, I probably was more of a, uh, you know, a top 40 disc jockey uh, in my experience in campus radio and and uh, and uh, not so much an album guy. And, and I think I will uh, I will choose a song uh, that is meaningful uh, to me and my wife. Uh, it was by the Vogues. It was from 1966. It's called You're the One. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for calling in and talking with us. All right, Stephen. That was great. Every time we meet, everything is sweet. Oh, you're so tender. I must surrender. My love is your love. Now and forever. You're the one that I love. You're listening to WDBM Impact 89 FM, and this is Exposure. The college radio business doesn't start and end on campus. In fact, something you might not be aware of is there's actually many companies whose sole focus is bringing new music to college radios with the hopes of getting airplay. Doug Blake, a promoter and founder of the Pirate Media Company, called in to give us an inside look at his business. All right, so, I mean, just to kind of get a little bit of background on yourself um, and Pirate, um, I read a few things about you, and I saw that you originally worked at WVGS, Georgia Southern's yeah. radio station. Was that the first time that you really got interested in college radio and maybe becoming a promoter someday? Right, yeah. I was uh, the music director there for for three years, actually. And um, I remember distinctly, like, I was an education major, and um, just one day I was talking to one of my promoters. I was like, so do you, like, get paid to do this? every week and they were like yeah so you just get paid to call me and talk to me <laughs> and they were like about records and i was like uh and they were like yeah yeah that, that's what we do and i was like i want to do that how do i make that happen um and so i tried to talk to a bunch of them about like how how to take that career path um surprisingly actually not many of them wanted to help me out um because there aren't that many jobs that do this mm -hmm. uh so i think they just wanted to keep it to themselves um <laughs> Um, and, uh, but, but that's what I, when I decided that I would want to do. So, mm -hmm. um, so you, uh, after you graduated, I understand that you wound up at planetary, but you had to send them a resume every day for weeks. So they were basically like, stop bothering <laughs> us and you'll, we'll give you a job. That's what happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, uh, <laughs> when I moved to Boston, it was on a whim. Like I was, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I wanted to be a promoter, but I didn't want to live in New York and, a friend of mine actually randomly called me and was like, hey, do you want to move to Boston? I was living in Connecticut at the time, and I was like, you know what? Yes, I would love to move to Boston. So I moved to Boston knowing that Planetary was there. I, uh, I started sending them a resume every week. Uh, at first, it was just like uh, a normal resume the first week. 
didn't hear anything back. And uh, I, I like to be tenacious. So I ended up sending them like a, a pre-record show that I did of like me at VGS. Then I sent them articles that I did while at the school paper. Then I sent them um, a, like a huge package I put together of like a magazine article somebody had written about me and some other things that I did at VGS and at um, Georgia Southern. And eventually the owner of Planetary called me. I was like, uh, we would love to offer you a job as receptionist. And I was like, okay, that's great. The one condition is you cannot send us any more resumes. <laughs> I was like, sure, that's fine. Uh, and then before I accepted the job, I was like, well, I'd love to be the receptionist if I can intern in the radio department as well. Mm. And he was like, I don't care. Just don't send me any more resumes. <laughs> gotcha. And then from there, you eventually helped found, found Pirate. Do you mind talking about how that process happened? What led you to want to you know, start your own company? Um, yeah, you know, uh, Steve also worked, Steve, um, from, from who is at Pirate, co-founder of Pirate also worked at Planetary and we were, you know, pretty much done with promoting. We had like been there for three or four years. We had done the whole promotion thing. We were tired of what we were doing. I was going to go start taking wine classes and become a sommelier and just get out of radio and so we were both looking to just kind of get out. And then when we did leave, um, we started talking to each other and like talking about why we left and like, you know, uh, what we wanted to do. And it kind of turned out that, you know, we, we were just tired of the way things were happening there, but mm -hmm. we never really talked to each other about it. We were a little bit idealist, like thinking that we could just go out there and, and just do it and uh, just have really good records and, and be able to work those really good records and have and make a difference at college radio kind of thing. Um, and I thought, and I think for a while we did like you definitely like you realize a lot of things are, are different when you're owning your own company. Mm -hmm. So it's um, it's definitely a different world. It's a little <laughs> definitely harder than we ever thought it would be. But <laughs> we've made it ten years, so at, at least we're doing something right. Yeah, clearly that was actually one of my later questions. Um, do you do do you guys now promote music that you? you not necessarily don't think has a chance, but maybe something that you're not a fan of. Is, is that a challenge for you guys? Well, you know, it, uh, it was a challenge at first. Like for me, like I always wanted to like everything, mm -hmm. uh, in order to work it. Um, and there's act I'm not going to name any names of bands obviously, but <laughs> there's some bands that we work that I do not like at all, but they actually do very well on the chart. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So my taste like might not change, but college radio's taste is always changing. And so for people who aren't really familiar with uh, the job of a promoter, can you describe how you interact with each station? Like, because I understand that you talk a lot with the music directors. Can you just describe that whole process? Yeah, I, um, for me, it's different for everybody. And that's, I mean, every promoter is different there. I try to be, uh, I try to be friendly. I try to be, be nice. I don't like to be pushy. I don't want to um, threaten anybody because uh, um, <laughs> there's a, there are there are people that not, not threaten. I mean, threaten to like take away servicing, or I try to have a conversation with people and like see what's going on with them, see what they're into, and you know, like most of my conversations begin like, "How was your weekend? Mm. Tell me what you did," and then like hopefully they'll want to know about my weekend. I'll tell them how what I did, and we'll talk about what's going on. And like, you know, I actually really like talking to music directors about everything else that they like as well. Try to get an idea of what music aside from mine um that they're into so i can better send them records from you know our database that kind of thing but 
if you don't like it, tell me so I can report back to the band that you don't like it, that you thought the vocals were whiny, that you thought that, uh, like, the bass player didn't know what he was doing or that the drums sucked. Like, just tell me what you think about it, and I'll report back. How much? Like, uh, it's not going to have your name on it, so who cares? Like, you know, mm-hmm. it, just be honest. How much feedback do you bring back to bands regularly? Is that another part of your job is kind of bringing the reaction back to the band? Yeah, as much as possible. I uh, I was I mean I wish I could get more, but like every I know every station's getting like every station's getting so many records. Like I'm sending our our goal is to send no more than five a week because every every station has five official ads that can add to CMJ. So our our goal is to have no more than five because it, our philosophy is if you if you liked all of our records, we want you to be able to add all five, and if you have six, you can't add all six. Um, I think you touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to ask, um, why promote college radio at all? Why promote to college radio at all? What really makes it special or different to you, and what do you hope the future of college radio holds? Well, I feel like uh, college radio is is going to be important and is important for for every upcoming artist. You know, it's one story. I, I mean, one band that we've worked every record of is uh, Tegan and Sarah. The first time I worked Tegan and Sarah like maybe 12 stations cared and they fell in love with them. And then next time the record came out, we have 30 stations. And the next time you have 50 and then a hundred. And then it just grows every time. And that's what's great about college radio is if you put the effort in at these stations, they're going to come back to the record the next time and support them. And then eventually the, the bands will graduate, you know, like Keegan and Sarah, like don't need college radio now, but they still send it as a thank you to these stations out there. It's great to have seen us build the base and then them kind of like graduate from that, as I was saying. Yeah. And I think we'll continue to do that. The, the, the biggest problem I see with, with college radio right now is that it's um, like the schools don't see it as important as they, as they used to, you know? Um, so they're not funding it as much. And I think that will continue to be the case. I think like many other stations will probably lose their life, their, you know, broadcast rights and they'll like go to more of a internet type basis. And that's going to suck for a while, but I think it will, it'll definitely get better. I I think, you know, uh, hopefully these internet stations will, will find ways to interact with their community in in the same way that they used to like as a regular signal. Mm -hmm. Um, At least that's my hope. I hope it just doesn't die away. I don't think it will. I think they're still, uh, big importance for a lot of bands like to get their start Mm -hmm. well again thank you so much for talking with us and before um i let you go i did hear besides a passion for music that you are quite a wino so if you could give us a (laughs) if if you have a good pairing of a band or an album and a bottle of wine what would it be (laughs) it's a tough question but (laughs) it is it is a tough question i mean personally i would um pair tegan and sarah with a a nice um bottle of uh, Pinot, Pinot, um, Pinot Noir. Like they would go very well with a nice Pinot Noir because they're elegant and yet rich at times. Thank you for joining us tonight. Special thanks to station manager Gabriela Saldivia and general manager Ed Glazer, as well as all our staff here at Impact 89FM. 
Tonight's show and all other exposure shows can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org. Tonight's show is definitely worth checking out if you're interested. We have links to some of the fine work of some of our guests, and you can find more information about College Radio Day as well. I'm your host, Stephen Rich, and we'll be back again next week at 7 p.m. You've been listening to Impact Exposure 89 FM. Our first staff pick for the evening comes from our current station manager, Gabriela Saldivia, with a spotlight on zines and their current place in equality. Abby Heath and Caroline Caswell like to make zines. You find out about zines and then you read one and then you're like, oh my gosh, like, I could do this. That was Caroline. She explains that a zine is a self-published magazine used to share ideas through photos and writings. I've created this exhibit called Print Party, celebrating queer feminisms through zines. Basically, it's an exhibition to highlight zinesters who are non-cisgender males. Cisgender means that the gender identity assigned to a person at birth is the gender that that person identifies with. Caroline and Abby's exhibit, held at the Michigan Women's Hall of Fame in Lansing, aimed to show off the work of people who do not fit in this definition. Usually in exhibitions or just in general in society, those voices are cast to the side. But the exhibit wasn't all serious. My name is Spencer Perriner. I'm reading Left Hand Lenore, Volume 1. Uh, it looks like a series of journal entries about Lenore uh, learning to write with her left hand, and it's pretty hilarious. Moments of reflection came when zinesters read their work aloud. I was relieved that my roommate wasn't home. It fit snugly and flattened up my chest, though maybe not so much as I had hoped or expected. Abby says the zine community is already pretty inclusive, but there is still work that can be done. We definitely wanted to create um, an environment that um, was an even safer space for people who um, don't identify as cisgender males, essentially. Caroline and Abby look forward to curating more events like this one and spreading the word that anyone can make a zine. We have one more staff pick for tonight, which will finish off the show, done by our former, former news director, Abby Newton. When it first aired, she was covering an art exhibit done at the Broden Art Museum, along with an interview with local band Desmond Jones. The Eli and Edith Broad Art Museum welcomed contemporary art, a visitor from New York, and live music on Friday. Hope Gangloff visited East Lansing to showcase her talents and share her knowledge as Wayne Zielinski and People's Temple performed during an exciting Friday night at the Broad. Impact was on the scene. It is not often that an artist gets a chance to become the subject in a piece of work. But for Donald Stahl, a photographer from New York City, the opportunity presented itself when his friend and contemporary artist Hope Gangloff requested his assistance. One day she asked me to sit for her. He's just such a nice guy and has such crazy looking eyes. I was like, oh, I can see painting him. He's fun to hang out with. It's always really nice because she has a really great atmosphere. It's like a, she's a good conversationalist. It's not like some intense thing where you sit in complete silence and it's, it's fun and usually you're uh, watching something. Um, I know for this painting here, I was watching a lot of Game of Thrones while I was sitting for it. Now, Hope is an artist in New York who produces vibrant and honest portraits of her friends. Through her unique style, she depicts her version of the modern American life. Stahl says he was pleased with how his portrait turned out. 
Uh, I was happy with it. I thought it was really nice. It wasn't. Um, I think a lot of times when people see like photos or pictures of themselves, you, the initial impulse is to kind of look for the faults or whatever. So when I send somebody a picture, a lot of times they come back with like, "I look old" or "I look fat" or you know. And and this one, I think I just went in without any expectations or you know, I, I didn't expect anything or to be portrayed a certain way. And I, I was happy with how she did it. Hope says she usually likes to have a personal connection to people before she paints them. Often, her subjects, like Donald Stahl, are friends. Yeah, but I think it's good with your friends because you already have like sort of a rapport and it's easier to like just kind of try stuff out. But I think, uh, you know, usually I think friend or not a friend, if you're sitting for an artist, you just kind of like leave it up to them and listen to them and take their cues. And Hope ventured to the Broad Art Museum to showcase her talents this past weekend. She says painting portraits is how she connects with those around her and how she related to her peers as a child. When you're a kid, you just do cartoons of the way that the way that your mom drives badly. You know, you like start doing cartoons and you get the likeness. Uh, I don't. It just it, it was a fun way to entertain and tease and relate to my peers and family. People from the area gather to engage with Hope and enjoy the new exhibit. Community resident Kazako Thonton says she appreciates the difficulty of contemporary art. Well, contemporary art is a very difficult art to understand. Some uh, you love it immediately, some you wonder what is this for, but the more you learn, the more you understand it, the better it gets. Yeah, it is a very uh, wonderful for our brains. Now Hope also came to East Lansing to embark on a unique mission. The Broad requested Hope's skills to paint a mural on one of the walls of the museum. The catch? The wall reaches about two stories and is actually ankle. Well, you know, you should try leaning up against this wall. It is a real killer, so it's not really a vacation. It's, it's seriously, I, mean, I wear knee pads, and I lean against the wall, and I have to bend my back like this to kind of hold the cup, brace my elbow, and paint. It's outrageous. It's a crazy Just angle. like Hope doesn't plan out her pieces of work before she paints them. Once the person's there, then I start planning. I kind of hop around in front of the canvas, make a couple of marks, try to figure out how to fit people onto the canvas. She didn't plan on hopping around as she scaled the wall of the Broad Art Museum this weekend. However, she enjoys the challenge. And as the contemporary art was showcased inside, performing art was showcased in the courtyard of the museum on Friday. Wayne Zielinski and People's Temple performed into the night as Hope Gangloff, Donald Stahl, and the community celebrated the new exhibit. For Impact News, I'm Abby Newton. Desmond Jones is a Lansing-based band that has currently been on tour around Michigan. Although no one in the band is actually named Desmond Jones, I caught up with the group last week. I'm John Novak, and I play the drums. I'm Isaac Bergowitz, and I play the guitar. I'm Chris Boda, and I also play the guitar. I'm George Falk. I usually play the saxophone, but I'm playing violin today. <laughs> uh, I'm John Loria, and I play the bass. Well, welcome to Exposure. Thank you for having us. This is Desmond Jones. Well, we got the name actually from uh, a Beatles song okay. from Oba Dee Wada. So Molly or Desmond and Molly Jones. So Are you Beatles fans? Yes, I am. Oh, we are, I don't think. I, like I mean we like the Beatles. Beatles. Yeah, yeah, everyone likes the Beatles. <laughs> so Desmond Jones is an okay name. You solidified yourselves on yeah. that. We had some other options, but they were a little weird, so <laughs> <laughs> do you want to share some of those options? Jelly. <laughs> Toad Frog was a big one. Uh, Frosty Nips, I believe. <laughs> Ooh! <laughs> <laughs> that, would, that could be 
open to interpretation, yeah. I think. <laughs> Moon Rover. Yeah. Moon Rover was a big one. That was actually a really good one. I mm. like that one a lot. It's a good one. I feel like if you had that, it'd be more like the space music, this like retro feel. But what is your style of music? How would you describe it? Um, I don't know. It says Spacey Folk Jam on the um, Facebook page, so <laughs> maybe. But it's like pretty much rock and roll with a little funky twist to it, I guess. Would you agree? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We play a lot of funk, blues, jam stuff. Yeah. Are there certain artists jazz. that have inspired you to play this or that you kind of look after to not imitate, but, you know, have similarities? Yeah, we're really influenced by people like Frank Zappa, mm -hmm. um, like a lot of jazz people like Mingus and Coltrane, and then, you know, obviously Fish and the Dead, stuff like that. So it all kind of just comes together in this Spacey weird... folk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. So when did you start becoming a band? John and I uh, started playing in sixth or sixth grade or seventh grade. Oh, wow. Sixth grade. Yeah, so we've been in bands all through middle school and high school, and then we got here, and we didn't really play much beginning of the year. And so at the end, I was like, all right, well, I kind of want to get something back together. So I grabbed John, and then we made flyers, and I put them up around the school. And uh, Chris was actually the only one that replied to it, so that ended up working out. <laughs> yeah, so we played one show in 2012 in the spring. It was like April yeah. during the spring semester. And then we played a couple times over the summer, just knowing that we were going to do something next year, but not knowing what. Mm -hmm. And then we put out a face or a Craigslist ad, and, and that's uh, that's how they guy. got me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Frequent Craigslisters. We're all still <laughs> alive. <don't laughs> like, oh my god! I, I just moved to East Lansing, and I was um, looking for jobs wherever I could look for them. And uh, Craigslist was obviously one of those places. So, in uh, an, an effort to convince myself that I was still being productive, but not being productive, I ended up browsing a bunch of like the musical and. Uh, Created like what? What is it like? Gigs. Uh, gigs? gigs yeah, yeah, I think you guys posted it in gigs. I didn't know that was a. There's a category so of gigs. Yeah, in most Craigslist? of it is like looking for adult film actresses. <laughs> but then, I then, can imagine then, so. Then, right below is an ad for a sax. Spacey folk music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was for saxophone and keys. Okay. Um, and I showed up one day and I. Just, Were you a little nervous? I, I mean, I, I wasn't too I afraid. We were pretty intimidated. Like, you just walking into like, some death <laughs> yeah, trap. Some alley. <laughs> some saxophone experience. <laughs> Moral hall. He's a must. <laughs> but, no, um, Isaac yeah. and I were impressed right away with both Chris and George. And George came in yeah. to play the saxophone, and Isaac and I, all through high school, have always wanted to have a horn yeah. section. We actually, uh, we actually got uh, a double sax response on that day because. Uh, uh, one of our another person showed up for sax and he played with us for quite a while but uh, he plays with us no longer <laughs> but uh <laughs> it was peaceful okay, good. <laughs> yeah we if he's the listening james we, we miss, miss you <laughs> yeah james come back, come back. <laughs> there we go <laughs> yeah isaac and i almost felt like we were auditioning for george at the time because we were so blown away by his talent and that was seriously. That was one of the like, one of the biggest pickups <laughs> we've ever had. Yeah, that was sweet. Well, that's it, very nice. George. It took us a really long time to find a bass player too. We actually went through four bass players. Well, three before John. Yeah, three yeah. bass players. Actually, two people from Wayne Selinski were our bass players. <laughs> <laughs> so we had, yeah, we had half of Wayne Selinski in our band at one point, and then um, 
And then uh, I was just walking through the dorms, like my dorm one day, and I heard someone playing bass, so I just walked into his room, and it was Johnny. So I just made him come practice with us. Oh, my goodness. And then, uh, yeah, I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> <laughs> Are you glad you were playing bass that one day, that fateful uh, day in your dormitory? Um, yeah. It was, it was quite a surprise when he walked in, but... <laughs> Isaac never knocked. <laughs> yeah, he didn't knock. I, I just, until he, like, practically tapped me on the shoulder, I had no idea he was in there. You were in your zone, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so to speak. Now, what's been your favorite place to play so far? I'm always a big fan of the basement shows. And yeah, I agree. The basement's like, I don't know, we've played at... Uh, Henrik or Hedrick. 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 That's Hedrick. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we've, we did uh, Orion and Vesta, and those were all just great shows. Oh, yeah. yeah. And do you guys create your own music lyrically, or do you um, just play songs that have already been created? What's your style in that sense? It's mostly originals. Okay. Yeah. We'll do covers like normal bands will, mm -hmm. like we'll throw in a couple per set, but it's mostly. Original stuff. We like to throw some crowd favorites in, like at parties and yeah, stuff, just so to people keep people well. interested. Mm -hmm. So, who does most of the writing? This guy. Yeah. Isaac. I do. <laughs> yeah. So you don't knock, what you do write. So that's yeah. Good. That's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, what do you guys hope for the future of this band? What's next besides the tour of Michigan? Tour of the world. <laughs> 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 no, we're probably just gonna keep playing and take it seriously and just see what happens. Yeah, I don't to... think we really have a lot of expectations it's just fun that's good yeah just so. try to build up as much of the crowd as we can yeah mm -hmm. yeah it'd be nice to you know be able to play in front of a lot of people but right now it's fun just to play in front of friends and small crowds is there anything on the band's bucket list maybe places to play or people to play for i don't think we ever thought about that we should probably do that one day. <laughs> like a realistic one? Or? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you feel. It can be both. Bucket list, dream list. <laughs> bucket list is, you know, can be whatever your heart desires. Well, we talked about wanting to play at Red Rocks, which would be yeah, amazing. Mm -hmm. I always argue Madison Square Garden, though. Yeah, but... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen. Don't set your limitations. Like yeah, yeah, it's a dream. <laughs> that's a dream. Red Rocks is big enough. That'd, that'd <laughs> be great. Have Chris's basement back, it'd be good. Yeah. <laughs> also long shot. Yeah. <laughs> well, gentlemen, thank you very much. We're going to close the show with you. So without further ado, that's right. right on us. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot. All right, we are Desmond Jones, and um, this first song is called Damp as the Dew. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next week, I'm Abby Newton, Impact Exposure, 89FM. That's it for tonight. All episodes of Exposure can be found online at impact89fm.org. Special thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, our station manager, Gabriela Saldivia, and our producer, Quinn Hoffman. You've been listening to Exposure with your host, Daniel Rizal.
Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure.